all my published studies, which have looked at long-term adaptations of two years, four years, six years, and up to 10 years, 10 years in professional athletes. And we looked at uh, what correlates to changes in velocity, lifting, for example, 50% one RM in a bench or in a jump squat. So in professional rugby players, and the biggest driver of the or correlate of the change in velocity is your change in one RM strength. So you've got to get stronger. If you're not getting stronger in your training, prepare yourself for a life of second or third division participation in sport. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast was actually recorded in 2020, but after reviewing some of the roundtables that I did during lockdown, I wanted to get them out there on the podcast. I wanted to increase the reach and share this incredible information. So we've got Lachlan Wilmot, Dan Baker, and John O'Weekly, so three authorities when it comes to velocity-based training. So we have a little chat around a few of the sticking points that practitioners are feeling when it comes to implementing velocity-based training. We have a little chat around the research in support of velocity-based training and how coaches can successfully implement VBT in the applied setting, which leads us on to velocity loss and a few of the metrics that coaches should be looking for. So it's an incredible episode with these three guys who bounce off each other fantastically during this episode. But for anyone that's wanting to know more about VBT and bridging the gap between the research, which is really, really positive, and practice, I'm sure you'll get lots out of this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military, and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH 
to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. So without further ado, over to the episode with Dan, Jono and Lachlan. So anyone that wants a bit of a background on you guys, I'll put a little bit on the website just so we're, we're not wasting time on, on the call just to make it as seamless as possible. But one thing that I read, over, well, last week, was a, a tweet from a, a reasonably experienced, well, very experienced coach, I think, on VBT. And it went something like this. So I'm going to say and prepare to be roasted. But in my opinion, VBT is a great idea in principle, but a nightmare in practice. Athletes hate it. It stops the flow of the session. Too many variables to manipulate to make it worthwhile. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. So I'm going to kick off with that and come to you, Dan, someone that's been educating coaches for, for a long time and, and speaking to many people about VBT. Is this something that crops up a lot? Or is this an isolated case? He's doing it wrong. <laughs> okay. Listen, Can... people think VBT, and I, and I really don't like the term VBT, but it's stuck there. So I just think VB, uh, velocity should influence decisions about good programming. The idea that you lift some light squats at 0.75 and, you know, you stop after three or four, you've lost 10, 20% velocity decline is ridiculous. All my published studies which have looked at long-term adaptations of two years, four years, six years, and up to 10 years, 10 years in professional athletes. And we looked at uh, what correlates to changes in velocity, lifting, for example, 50% one RM in a bench or in a jump squat. So in professional rugby players, and the biggest driver of the or correlate of the change in velocity is your change in one RM strength. So you've got to get stronger. If you're not getting stronger, in your training, prepare yourself for a life of second or third division participation in sport. Uh, if you're happy with that, good. Don't, you know, just go and lift 0.75 squats and, you know, play around with the girls there in the gym with pink dumbbells. But everyone else who strives to get stronger will improve their velocity lifting absolute resistances. Then, on another day of the week, uh, you know, I believe you should have two days a week, one where you train uh, strength, more oriented at strength and hypertrophy and one where it's more velocity driven. On that velocity driven day, rather than looking at an iPad and oh, you've, you've lost 23% stop the set, how about coach your effing athletes on the technique? And you can program quite simply. 
goes like this. If you want a 20% velocity decline in squats or deadlifts, it's about half the amount of reps you possibly could do. So if you're doing a 10 RM, do five reps. You're doing eight RM, do four reps. That's 20% velocity decline. If you want a 10%, well, it's less. You're gonna do maybe a third of the amount of reps. So doing three reps with a 10 RM, you only get a 10% velocity decline. Uh, you shouldn't use those percentages declines for the upper body. 20% velocity decline for squats and deadlifts is like 30% for bench and chin-ups and things like that. So use 30% for pressing movements and pull-ups, uh, you know, which is a minimal velocity decline. Because normally if you go to failure, you're looking at maybe 60% velocity decline on bench press and pull-ups. So 30% is, again, about half the amount of reps. So I program those things in. I don't say, oh, look at a screen, mate. I'm going to get to 20%, just stop your set. I think that's stupid. I mean, yeah, that would drive me crazy. So do you think I that's what do you think that's what people think it's gonna do, Dan? Just take over as 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 the coach? Well, I, I don't know what they think, but I certainly don't teach people that they've <laughs> never done that. Yeah. I, I mean, you might be doing a set, I might prescribe uh, say six sets of three and we're doing something, but we get to the fourth set of three, and if you're starting to get really big velocity declines, well, we have to make a decision. Do I give you a longer rest period, reduce the weight, or stop it there? That's just the art of coaching. Uh, you know, and so you're using velocity to make an informed decision about what I do. Well, we've had a big velocity decline. Uh, maybe you, you, you're really fatigued from team sport training. You know? And the same thing with your strength work. You know, this idea of estimating one RM from velocity scores, that's fool's gold. You know, I prescribe a weight. Now, if there's a a change in velocity lifting on almost any strength exercise of 0 0.04, 0 0.05, is equivalent to a 2.5% change in 1RM. So if um, uh, someone's doing pull-ups, for example, and they're just using body weight and the body weight's constant, and they're normally getting 0.6 on the first rep, first two reps, now they're getting 0.65, we know they're going up 2.5%. If they're a swimmer or surfer, they might have had hard work in the water. They come in, they normally get 0.6 on their first set and they're getting 0.55. Well, maybe the weight I choose from that date, if as we go up in weight, will be 2.5% less. That's how I say use velocity. Just use those scores to make better decisions about the program you're doing. It doesn't rule your world uh, totally. It's something we use in combination with the weight on the bar and uh, for heavy strength work, the RPE of the set, because it does correlate very strongly to the RPE of the last rep. So you use velocity and RPE at the end of the set, and you look at the velocity of your best rep to gauge where your strength level is that day. So if you normally squat 140 and your score for the first rep is 0.6 and, and one day you're uh, uh, 0.55, maybe you're about 2.5% down that day. Maybe the next few sets, we, we can reduce the weight 2.5% or take one rep off that you're supposed to do. It's two and a half percent, one hour is one rep, say. Mm -hmm. That's how I see it. So if people make it more complicated than that, they should give themselves an uppercut. Okay. If you, while, while, someone, while someone else is talking, if you've got something to say, just unmute yourself. I know you've muted yourself, so that's so thank you. Um, Jono, seeing as though you've unmuted yourself, is that is is that and not this is not coming for Steve who actually made that statement by the way. Hopefully not. This is just setting the scene. And if my my rationale for these kind of things if, if he's saying it that the old classroom if, if someone's got the hand up asking a question it's probably a question that everyone wants to ask 
So is this a statement that you have heard before or similar? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, cheers, Robin. Th thanks for like having a chat, mate. It's pretty humbling to be the smallest guy on the panel for the first time in my life. <laughs> um, but, um, mate, like, if, if coach, like, I do hear it, and it's something that makes me kind of sit up and go, you don't understand VBT. You don't understand what VBT is, if, if that's what you're saying, because velocity-based training is just a method to enhance training practice, which utilizes velocity. Velocity-based training, it's, it's in the name. The hint's there. And I think... Um, you know, we, we, I know, like we talk about things like continuums of velocity-based training, and you know, velocity-based training entails a range of different methods. No one ever says to you, "Oh, do you utilize percentage-based training?" You'd be like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, of course I do. But like, we, no one, but everyone starts to say, "Oh, do you use velocity-based training?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And I think pinpointing what people are talking about and what they're struggling with. Okay, sure. But the thing is, is like. If you can't, uh, let me, okay, so on the most basic level, feedback, providing feedback of how an individual is training on a given day, you can provide motivation and improve competitiveness. And just providing feedback to your athletes is literally the most simple thing you can do, the most simple thing you can do. So it's like just interacting with your athletes a little bit, just a little bit. And if you want to improve your motivation and competitiveness, you know, just provide some feedback. And if you're too busy, you're too busy for that, man. You're a busy guy. Or if you don't want to interact your athletes, mate, there's a job at the local library waiting there for you. You know what I mean? Read a book all day. That, that's, that's fine. But strength and conditioning is all about interacting and motivating and driving up competitiveness and helping to improve that, you know, improve their environment in the gym. And at the most basic level, providing simple feedback is VBT, you know? And, and then just as you go down and start incorporating maybe arbitrary cutoffs or arbitrary starting levels or, you know, all the way up to like kind of full auto-regulated periodized models with VBT, you know, pick and choose. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not like boxed into a, oh, I'm a VBT guy and you're not a VBT guy because realistically you can pick and choose the tools that you want to use. And if they're struggling with VBT or some sort of aspect that they want to do, then maybe pick the cohort, pick as the right tools from VBT and implement it with your squad there. Lucky coming to you. Is this, yeah, what's, your, what's your journey been like on this? It's uh, coming in its third third place, mate. It's uh, everyone's stolen all my ideas. It's, it's, it's everything <laughs> I was going to say. So there's not much to really repeat. But um, but I think it's spot on. I, I think it's the same as uh, I think the analogy of um, you know I'm a percentage based training guy is spot on. But well, it, it's our classic industry is just then oh, I'm a kettlebell guy. I'm a this guy. Like these methods just get held onto. Um, velocity based training, as and as Dan said, like the the name just rolls off the tongue. So it's just been stuck with it now, and people are going to keep rolling with it. But it's just a, another measurement tool, another method that, that I can use in prescription. Um, you know, and the same as when we talk about people getting so caught up on iPads and everything, it's the same as if you're in an iPad and you're saying, well, the percentage I was planning for them to lift was going to be 70% today. And you look at them, forget about velocity. They're just, they're just lifting well and they're fresh and they're flying and stuff like that. Like, that's where as a coach, you can be like, well, you know what? Let's do a little bit more. Or the inverse. Like if I've prescribed 85%, 90% and they look absolutely grindy and crap, well, I'm going to change that. Um, and I think velocity-based training is exactly the same. It's, it's a, a fantastic tool to utilize when your main key focus is, is going to be velocity. And you can also use it as a, as a tool that can add to you as a coach to make better decisions, more decisions or quicker decisions. But like everything, if, you, if you're going to be stuck on an iPad or you're going to be having your head in the computer and worry more about that than watching your athlete lift, get rid of it. 
Like, I mean, if, I, if I've got young coaches, if I've got interns that are, that are, that are doing things outside of, of my gym, um, now a lot of them will obviously work under my, my guidance in our gym with a, a number of different tools, and they will naturally want to try and use those type of tools in their settings and in their scenarios. And some of their settings and scenarios that they, they need to be on the floor, they need to be coaching, they can't be watching things or monitoring things as, as, uh, as detailed as they probably would want to um, if it's a based around computers or iPads or anything like that. And sometimes it's just about recording and worrying about it later, looking at it later, reviewing these things later. Um, you know, we use Team Builder at, at Athletes Authority and they have the option to be able to plug in um, your meters a second for each of them. So you can, you can have some pretty basic VBT stuff and have it recorded in there and review it later and stuff like that. Uh, it's always great done live, obviously, but um, mate, I'm, I'm completely with the other two. At the end of the day, it is, it is a great tool. It's a great measure and method that you can utilize and add to your training. But it, there's not once would I ever think of velocity-based training as everything that I'm going to do in the gym and everything's going to be based on VBT. So, John, I'll come back to you. The science has been stacking up for a while that this is, this is potentially the way to go. What, why, why would people not, what, what are the barriers for people not to implement this? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think there's a good question, mate. And like, you know, just like anything, you got barriers, you know, like, like, wanting to get stronger, you got barriers, you need access to a gym. You know, if you want, if, if you want to go down to a gym, you need barbells, you need plates, and all these sort of things cost weight. But velocity based training has this, um, you know, do, does have technology invo uh, involved. And, you know, that, that, that is a, that is a aspect that you need to consider. And, I know as it gets starts to get a bit um, a bit geeky here, but validity and reliability is essential for these for this technology. And there are there are you know some some techno pieces of technology which are excellent, and then some technology are maybe riding the wave a little bit. But I think um, I think that you know well, the first and foremost you kind of need the technology and you need to understand it a little bit. The second thing is is that at universities and clubs and schools and everywhere we learn resistance training, we're not taught about bars go heavier, bars go slower. You know what I mean? Like we're not taught about that because I think it back. I think if uh, when I was undergrad, if I'd been taught bars go heavier, bars go slower instead of percentages, which we know don't account for daily fluctuations and fatigue because we get tested in fatigue-free states, and then for the rest of the mesocycle, we often prescribe off it. You know, people would just be going, "What the hell are you talking about? That's insane." You know what I mean? Like so, you know, I I think realistically, it's probably understanding the information around VBT and what it is and how it ties in with percentages. Um, and then probably, probably the final thing is, is just um, kind of then also explaining it to the athletes. Just like any training program you've got, you need to explain what you're trying to go for. You know, we, we know for a fact that adaptations are greater when the athlete believes in the coach and believes in the program and really buys into it. And I think if you can just explain bars go heavier, bars go slower, as you fatigue, bars go slower, you know, then realistically, the athlete starts to buy into it too. So pretty much there's a few things there, but I think just understanding what VBT is is probably the biggest barrier. And because, because we're often taught one way, it doesn't mean that this other way isn't valuable. It's just we need to be taught about it and we need to learn about it. Dan, biggest barriers for, for the guys that you've come across and educated along the way, what are the biggest barriers for those guys to, to implement it? Uh, I think just, you know, older strength coaches, struggle okay. with technology in the gym where, you know, like I've had guys who are say college coaches in America, experienced guys who say, but you know, I'm really good at what I do. I've done this, you know, for 20 years of this college. I don't want to change. And so no one says you have to change your programming. You're just getting a, 
a tool to probably validate your really good observations that this athlete's flat today or this athlete's flying, like Lachlan said. So it doesn't need to change anything you do if you don't want it to. It just helps you make better decisions. And then from, from my experiences, better coaches or good coaches just use velocity to validate what they see and give objective data. So, okay, you're a bit fatigued today. Um, well, what's that? What's a bit? How much do I drop the weight back in the bar? Okay, well, your score's down uh, 0.07 on it normally. So let's drop that back three or 4%. That's all, yeah? So we just, rather than saying a bit, what's a bit? Is it 10 kilos, five kilos? So when you're, you know, it just gives you an objective number. If we know that, you know, a 0.05 change in most strength exercise equals 200%, we can give proper objective amounts to, I'm a bit stronger today, I'm a bit more fatigued today. And good coaches should be aware of that. They'll see with their eye, like Lachlan said, okay, but now we've got a concrete amount of data to make a better, slightly better decision. On, on that as well, I, I find it as a, a fantastic avenue is just another another way of prescription, especially for some of my, say, track athletes or combative athletes um, that do associate speed of movement quite a lot with what they do. Um, and being able to prescribe a, a specific velocity, irrespective of the weight they use. So on a fatigue day, they'll, they'll lift lighter, but hit the same speed. On a, on, a, on a day they're feeling good, they'll load up and still hit the same speed. I think from a mental standpoint, I find it far better for the athlete um, when they can focus on that. And I have far less of this, you know, oh, I'm feeling tired. So then I go, well, let's let's drop the weight a little bit and change this. Oh, but no, but I, I lifted that last week. I should be able to lift it this week. Um, when it's when it's the velocity focus, they, they seem to be far less concerned with what's actually on the bar in certain movements. Obviously, we do um, you know trap bar jumps and, and and squat jumps predominantly with this type of method. But um, you know it, it's a fantastic option for them because it actually takes that mental focus off the weight and keeps it on velocity based training. Exactly what we're trying to improve at the time: speed, power, and 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 moving that bar with speed. And whether they're fatigued or not, it's just a fantastic avenue for them to focus on. There's been a couple of questions, but we'll use probably the last 10, 15 minutes to come to all questions. So people keep firing in there and we'll, we'll get them to the end, get them at the end. Just staying with you, Lockie, metrics. It sounds like there's potentially a, um, people get overwhelmed with what they should be doing, how they should be doing it, what says in the research, what I can actually do in practice, that potential disconnect. In terms of the, the metrics that we should be using from your experience, team sports, private setting, where have you gone with that? How, how deep have you gone? With the metrics that you collect yeah. and use um look we, we've done a bit of both so if, if you look at the the pro sports side we've certainly looked at um the the idea of of having certain lifts that players will come in and we'll monitor those lifts um within the warm-up and the prep and then obviously that will then guide their session um we found that uh, just a little bit um uh, cumbersome in the way and this was again way that we had set up, we only had one unit at the time. Um, people were flowing through. We were, you know, boys were tired. They were coming off the, the deck. Um, so these are the type of things that obviously with more units, better setup can function better. In the, in the situation we had, it didn't work very well. Um, so we then became far more specific with the lifts that we used it on. Um, and again, we would usually use it in our velocity blocks, which is the start of our, our session. Um, or on, as Dan was saying, on days that we, we were, were doing velocity style days versus, you know, um, versus a, a max 
effort style day. Um, in at Athletes Authority, we're a little bit different. We have we have a couple of the um, wireless gym aware units, which are the um, the flex units. Um, they've been really handy. We, we certainly don't um, prescribe them to everyone all the time. Um, a lot of the, the athletes that we work with, we do have a much more percentage-based focus um, and the, the style of training they do is far, probably more, um, best way, probably more general in the fact that I don't get to live with them day in, day out like I did in the professional world where we could make fine tweaks here and there. These athletes are obviously coming in. Most of them are amateur athletes. Most of them are trying to make it to the next level or their, their kids. Um, so doing that becomes very hard to be really specific with a lot of things. Um, so without prescription with velocity-based training at, uh, at the, the current private setting is predominantly is that, that other metric for, um, for prescription, which is where I will most commonly prescribe um, a velocity that I want them to hit based on uh, where I want them to actually be within that, that mesocycle, that periodization model that we're working with, obviously the style of athlete and the speeds I want them to get to. Um, and then we'll start to program off that using slightly faster velocity, slightly slower velocities and innately that that weight will shift based on the velocity that we prescribe. Um, we don't do a lot of, um, you know, box squatting where it'll be max effort style movements, but we're measuring that that smaller fatigue with um, with our, our velocity based training tools. Um, but I have done that in the past, but it's certainly not something that, that I do in the, the private sector. Just coming to you, Dan. Different populations. Would you focus on different things? based on experience level. I know that's coming up in a question. We can get to that specifically at the end, but experience level, age, et cetera. Yeah, I don't use any velocity-based training much with uh, young athletes. They don't need it. Just get in and get strong. Um, and of course, normally for younger athletes, you, you've got larger numbers because um, they're academy and so they're not as important. So there'd be a bigger squad um, and less resources. So it becomes like Lachlan and, and, and John said, it becomes difficult to manage. Um, unless, you know, maybe one exercise like jump squats or something where you need a, a velocity score or trap bar jumps or something like that. But uh, as, as the athletes get more advanced, I use it uh, on uh, key exercises. So I'm not measuring Nordics with it or glute ham raises or curls. I normally only use, measure two or three exercises in a workout. Uh, because it's normally for me, two or three key exercises in a workout and the rest is the other stuff. Um, yeah, but if you've got enough people, you can measure on five or six. You've got five or six important exercises. Um, do, use it on five or six. So if you had squat, push, press, bench, press, and cleans, you can do it on all of them. You know? So it's up to you, but I use it less with young people that don't need it. They just need to get in and train, be consistent, get stronger, um, start learning the RPE method, which is easy to teach them. And then later on, uh, the RP method and the velocity system, they, they mesh together. They, they work well together in the strength world. So uh, if they're already familiar with the RPE system, then we can add the velocity measurements later on and they'll mesh well together. John, I'll just come into you. Yeah, yeah, no, just, definitely. Oh, sorry, on, no, I'm just gonna say down that, down that left-hand side of the, the continuum, for just for mm. motivational purposes, can that be good for for young athletes just to get them on the just get them on yeah. the continuum? Yeah, that that seminal work, which was uh, like so, the, the, kind of like the real first piece of work, which uh, Argus did back in like 2010, 2011, around that time, he kind of did feedback and uh, showed that okay, velocity and power out, 
outputs increase. And that was in Super Rugby, but the real seminal work that showed why these increases started to occur was was actually in adolescence. So, you know, it, it works. It works in adolescence, but that's not me saying that we need to use it with adolescence. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an individual, if you're an individual who needs to learn how to squat, the last thing we need to do is then putting an external focus on them and saying, okay, let's chase these numbers. Like no one's saying that. That's that's insane. But realistically, you can use it across all all age groups. With you know, guys like Sam Orange have done work with uh, elderly populations. You know, Gabriel Tiano uses work well, um, has been talking about things like um, sit to stands and things like that, monitoring velocity. So all right up to the you know octogenarians and elderly uh individuals down to adolescence it has been shown to work but realistically when do we start seeing the real bang for our bucks you know probably in that elite athlete population for me personally personally i found the biggest uh the best time i've ever had it was when i've had squads of about 45 to 50 athletes you know they've come off a field they've covered they've covered we've planned to do five kilometers the coach has said has uh, just gone over time by about 45 minutes. They've run additional five kilometers. They've taken 20 hits. They've cleared out five rucks or six rucks on average per athlete. And then they come in all banged up. And those, you know, 70% uh, 70% one RM back squats that we had prescribed are no longer 70% one RM back squats. You know, they're more like 85, 90%, you know. And instead of tearing my hair out and start screaming about why you guys are, you know, so useless and you can't do these reps just because I stayed up to 3 a.m. trying to program them, you know, hey, let's take a step back and go, okay, well, the velocity is lower. Okay, they're finding it harder. Let's take some load off and let's actually prescribe what we prescribed. So realistically, you know, VBT is just a tool that allows us to prescribe more objectively and to account for fatigue as the athletes are training. So realistically, you can utilize the whole the whole spectrum. But, real, but for me personally, mate, those big squads where I need to start to account for all the different forms of fatigue, occurring across the week or across the mesocycles, that's when I really start to see those big bang for bucks. Actually, and also when you've got one-on-one athlete and you can go full auto-regulatory periodization, geez, that's pretty exciting stuff too. It's, the, it's, it's potentially them big groups, Jono, that people would say is the barrier. So logistically, how was that working with your group of 45, 50? What did that look like? Yeah, so um, yeah, so p- personally, when like when we had the boys come in and you got... 45 layers come in and you know they've been on the field first because this is the thing about VBT and percentage-based training. VBT is based off percentage-based training. You can't say VBT doesn't work because percentage-based training doesn't work in, in theory, you know. But realistically, for me, you know, we know the low velocity relationship, it's very linear. We know that the bar gets heavier, the bar goes slower. And we can t- and as the boys walk in, you kind of have these arbitrary cutoffs going down to that left-hand side of the continuum. And as the boys come in and you know, you know that the bar should be going somewhere between 0.6 and 0.7 meters per second or something. And then as you've got your iPad in front of you and you're talking to the boys, for me, I'm very sure I have to go stand on the box. So I have to go see everyone. So, uh, you know, so but I can shout out to the lads, you know, I can see the velocity in front of me. I can see the velocity on my iPad. I can go have conversations and actually have like some stimulate some discussion about why the bar is going slow, why they're feeling it harder today. I don't need to intervene with everyone. They've still got their programs based off percentages. They've still got the programs, but and the weights that they're going to lift with. If the bars are going about 0.2 of a meter per second slower, hey, then we can have some objective feedback. We can give it back to the athlete and we can go, hey lads, 
all right, the bar's gone slow, what's going on today? And you can have those conversations. For me, it's not something that I need to intervene with on every single rep and every single set. I can just set up the gym awares. Well, I, I personally, I've, I've always used gym wear and they've been really effective for me. I can set them up. As the boys come in, away we go. The boys know that the speed should be between 0 0.6 and 0 0.7. First rep should be somewhere in there. If not, then hey, maybe we need to modify the load. And that's personally super easy. If a coach can't get their head around or don't doesn't have the time to do something like that, geez, maybe you know, maybe maybe they're too busy and then maybe they need to get a hand or take a step back, you know. Were you going to dive in there a minute ago, Lockie? Yeah, I was. I was actually. I've now completely forgotten what I was going to say. Um, but, but, oh, that was what I was going to say. Perfect. Thank you. Um, I was just going to confirm the fact that I, I think one of those big. Um, uh, I suppose hurdles to velocity-based training is when the focus shifts from the technical execution of it. Um, and you do see that, you know, Dan mentioned with kids, they don't need it, which is spot on. When you, when you get kids just focusing on trying to move things quickly, it's always a recipe for disaster. And same goes for sometimes uh, when you're in sport, obviously you might have a 22 year old, but he's still a kid. Um, and the, the way they act and, and the way they get competitive is, is also a positive, but can be a negative. So I think it's really important to understand your group, the people you're working with, um, especially like I've seen plenty of coaches that, that use VBT with Olympic lifting and like, they can't even Olympic lift. So there's no point chasing these velocities when, when they can't actually Olympic lift. So um, I think really understanding your group and the person or people you're working with and how their shift of attention to velocity is going to affect their training, positive or negative, I think you've just really got to take into that consideration. Just just stay on that, Lucky. What kind of group would you or have you in the past seen it bomb with? And what kind of population have you seen it fly with? What kind of characteristics of a, of a group? Um, I, I think, look, the the characteristic of a group that it works well with is one that's A, been educated about it, two, has a, has a good training age. The, the same principle of, you know, people trying to use advanced plyometric training and they're not even strong. Well, there's, there's no freaking point. Like, um, I think when you're starting to focus on on velocity, though, I think you still you have to have some some sound foundational movement patterns and be able to actually lift well. Um, so, you know, groups that are educated well on it know what they're they're chasing. They're not just always chasing the fastest velocity possible, regardless of movement. Um, they understand how it's going to affect them, and they understand the outcomes they're looking for um, is is key. I think the the group that doesn't work well with it are ones that, that don't necessarily value strength training to begin with. Um, I've seen certainly people that, that don't value strength training as much and then using VBT, trying to get them on board with the speed side of things rather than worrying about how much loads on the bar. Um, it's been very hit and miss previously. Um, sometimes you can have good success. You know, people always hang shit on soccer players for it. So I'll keep doing it. But you look at some soccer players that, that don't necessarily are known for not enjoying lifting heavy. Um, I think VBT can potentially work well where they can have something else to focus on. But then also if they just don't value strength training, then that ends up being a bit of a, a backward step because then they start getting a little bit out of control with it as well. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. But for me, it's a, a mature group that's been educated uh, versus a group that just doesn't doesn't take, um, you know, strength and conditioning to the, to the series that they have or a young group that gets distracted easily. Similar for you, Dan, in terms of groups uh, that it works within groups that it doesn't? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first started using velocity training with the, was with the Australian diving team and... Um, 
the early 1990s, say from 1993 onwards. That's how old it is. It's so new, velocity-based training. And with a springboard or platform diver, the main thing is, you know, the velocity they come off the board or the, or the platform with because that determines jump height, which then determines the distance before you hit the water. So, you know, when you've got divers, you have females in a diving squad, probably sometimes 13 or 14. So that's young um, athletes. And it worked for them because all they want to do is jump higher in the air. That's the whole reason they go to the gym. And you remember the 1990s, no one looked at weight, especially females. You know, it's not like now. Uh, I might look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, like. I'm pretty sure he won't love, but, you know. Uh, so it, it will work, you know, individual sport athletes, uh, track and field, divers, you know, where, like uh, guys I mentioned before, where velocity is the focus of their sport, yeah, they'll, they'll really embrace it, a lot of them, you know, like, uh, you know, especially track and field and, and diving and things like that. Um, but any, like John was saying, and like he's saying, just a competition. So if you've got any athlete who's competitive, as long as the athlete's competitive, it will work, but it can work with young athletes, especially um, individual sport athletes and track and field athletes, because velocity is their focus for a big track and field event, you know, whether you throw, jump or sprint, and diving is a jumping sport, so you know, any of those sports. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with these three guys. So in part two, we have a little chat around the metrics that coaches should be uh looking at when it comes to VBT. We have a little uh, chat around velocity loss and the research around that metric and how you can implement it within your practice. So super interesting episode, our second part of the episode coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, Head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsored by Smarterbase. So Smarterbase is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. So built on an infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategies, processes, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and pre-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand by it. Visit smarterbase.com to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. And now back to the episode with Dan, Jono and Lachlan. Jono, coming back to you. 
velocity loss. And I think there's there's a question here that will, like I said before, we'll come back to specifically in the last 10, 15 minutes. But seems to be getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention. Can you give us a bit of a, a rundown on what velocity loss is? And then I know Dan's mentioned it right at the start, but just to kind of take us back and, and just give us an idea of what it is, then we'll have a little dive into how people might implement it. Yeah, so velocity loss. So like if anyone's listening and uh, isn't, you know, across, I'll make this like eggs for a second here and I'll start the bare bones. But velocity loss is uh, one of those concepts where um, pretty much you, you, you have a starting velocity and then you exercise down to a relative percentage of that velocity. So for example, if you start at 0.7, a 10% loss would be 0.63, 20% 0.56, 30% 0.49, and you go down. And what we're, what we're seeing is, um, and, the, and the literature is very conclusive on this, is that when you, when you prescribe a velocity loss threshold, the internal response, so sorry, the external response I'm going to start with the external response because the external drives the internal, which drives the adaptation. And that's what we're interested in, right? The external response is very, very consistent across sets. So if I start with a certain velocity loss threshold, start at 0.7, let's say, go down to 0.63. Well, the external, the force, the velocity, and the power maintains within this kind of very tight boundary. That's irrespective of the athlete because you're helping to control the external response. Now, that's all well and good, but... What really interests me personally is where the internal responses start to kick on, kick in, and you know, I think um, you, you tweeted you tweeted a paper there, and I, I genuinely meant it was one of the most important papers I've ever been involved with, and I don't know if I'll ever be involved with a paper more important personally, mate. But um, that paper, what that paper demonstrated that is that with velocity loss thresholds, is that they uh, you can they're highly uh, reproducible, so. As a coach, I don't care if an athlete can do something once. I care if I can prescribe a training session and they can do it multiple times, time and time again. So if I prescribe three times 10 at this, with 75% of your 1RM on, at the start of the season, your internal response at the start of the season is going to be very, very different once you've had eight weeks of training. And, you know, but the thing is, is that does that mean that we're prescribing a session and unable to reproduce it? you know, with traditional percentage-based methods. Well, yeah, have you ever done three times 10 at 75% and then done it multiple times? Well, the third, fourth, fifth time, you feel better than the first time. You know, the first time you're hanging out your backside. But, the, you know, but, the, but, this, but with velocity loss thresholds, what that enables you to do is allows you to hit, have an external stimulus that drives an internal stimulus that is highly reproducible. And what we've done to demonstrate that is we've got people to do 10, 20, 30% velocity loss thresholds. We've got them to go away. We've got them to go away, do as much training as they want. They can do as, as little training as they want. They can go train the house down. They can do moderate amounts of training. They can do strength training, hypertrophy training, just power training. It doesn't matter. And this is what we need to do more in resistance training research to begin with. We need to assess the reproducibility of our training prescriptive methods because I don't care if you can do something once, I need to be able to do it time and time again. So once these athletes started to come back, some of them were four weeks, some of them were two months, some of them were three months, all the way up to six months, we got them to come back in and we prescribed the same velocity at the same velocity loss thresholds and the, and the, between, and the, and the internal response, the neuromuscular, the metabolic, the perceptual, all the fatigue responses were the same, like within you know, one or two percentage, amazing control. So what that means to me as a coach, it means I can now prescribe something and it's reproducible about over time. 
because let's, let's be honest, you, you prescribe four times five at 80% of one RM today, and in three weeks time you come back, you're gonna have a very, very different response, but not with velocity loss thresholds and not with VBT. And that's why personally as a coach, it's just so darn powerful. Mm-hmm. Lucky velocity loss in your, in your setting, pro sport, private? Yeah, we certainly we didn't we didn't use it to that extent in the pro setting. Um, we, as I said, at that stage we were, um, yeah, we had one gym aware unit at the time. Um, it certainly wasn't with our, our age look. The group that we had, we had a lot of eighteen year olds come straight in. Um, it was an AFL setting initially. Um, when I was in rugby league, um, velocity based training would have would have blown their brains a little bit. Um, but it certainly was the the initial start of it when we had a young group. Um, and that type of like, I mean. The, the concept of it and, and the research that John was talking about is, is certainly a, a game breaker for um, prescriptive-based stuff and being able to be quite accurate in the way that you can um, prescribe. And I think that's always been people's arguments with percentage-based training that um, it is that traditional, let's, let's test the 1RM and then we're going to use that 1RM, some people for the next year, to eight weeks. And it's just, it just simply isn't, isn't going to be valid. And, and we certainly, like, I mean, at Athletes Authority, we use percentage-based training. We do it on a five, well, technically a four-week cycle. Um, and it's, a lot of it's based on training percentages rather than actual testing percentages. Again, it's just the environment I'm in. Um, it's certainly not something that we have used uh, in the private setting, but it is certainly something with a couple more units. I don't see why it wouldn't be valid and, and really effective in my environment, considering how different everyone's days and weeks are. Um, you know, I, I, we have what, almost 200 athletes with, geez, I'm going to make a pun, probably about 30 different sports. So with, with that many different sports, every training cycle is different, every day is different. Some are, uh, are full-time athletes going for professional contract, others are uh, amateur athletes that have got to work as well. Um, so to be able to prescribe knowing what the hell they do every day is very hard. Um, so I think something like a, a threshold loss option is, is certainly something we could, we could look at implementing. I, I certainly haven't done it, but no. Cool. I think we've got, some, we've got some decent questions coming in. So I'm going to... I don't know if you've seen these on the uh, on the Q and A, but Dan, I'm going to come to you for that that last one. So, Olympic weightlifting exercises ex- exist on a spectrum. Have any of you seen value in selecting a specific weightlifting exercise to achieve a specific velocity range that corresponds to a specific adaptation? Choosing the exercise, why don't you choose the velocity then? Well, I'll give you an example, like a Chinese high jumpers. This was, uh, was told to me by Joseph Quinn. I, I didn't train these guys that for the Rio Olympics. They were doing hand cleans and sets of two, um, getting a peak velocity of two metres per second. Then as they got closer to the Olympics, they thought that was too slow. They moved to 2.2. How much weight did they use? Well, what's the most amount of weight you can use today and get that velocity? And then when did we stop? When both reps in the set didn't achieve that velocity. So you might have been 12 sets of two on one day, 15 sets of two on another, six sets of two on another. What weight? Well, whatever is the most weight, you can still get that. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's one way of looking at it. But um, you have to be careful that uh, there's certain things you can do in weightlifting that can uh, give you a false peak velocity. You can smash that bar against your hips where it drifts way out. And you get a great peak velocity, but it's shit technique. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, 
Measuring velocity during Olympic lifts lasted two sets at the Broncos. One guy worked it out. <laughs> Figure out quicker. Yeah. So uh, we, we, we had, that was a tendo dine then. So he only had average velocity, but he worked it out if he did a really bad technique and looped that tether around a long way with a reverse curl technique, he got a higher velocity. So two sets, uh, it was gone because it was changing uh, behavior. Velocity does change behavior. Sometimes people want to win the contest so bad, they'll choose an inappropriate technique behavior. No matter what you can argue them, say don't do it. These are you know, battle dogs. These are forwards in rugby league. You know, they would crush the skull of an opponent and scoop out their brain uh, as easy as anything in life. So saying, oh, come on, have good technique not to win the contest and don't win the contest, it's not gonna happen. So you have to be careful. Um, but if you have really good trainers, yeah, you can use uh, peak velocity and uh, on uh, any Olympic lift. And, you know, obviously the snatch is faster because the snatch uses 20% less weight. Snatches are 20% faster than cleans because you, you snatch 20% less. So whether you use a snatch pull or a clean pull or jump or whatever, it just comes down to what load you want to do and your technique and your mobility. Uh, I don't think, you know, people think our oh, snatch is inherently faster. Well, snatch is faster because it's 20%. 20, 22% less weight in a snatch. So it's 20, 22% faster. That brings it to a nice, uh, I think it might, might be interesting, bar path. When it comes to tech and something that measures bar path, is that something that we should be worried about and choosing tech that does or are we not too fussed depending who it is and team sport environment, et cetera? I know there's been quite a lot written recently about the importance of bar path. Does it really matter? Are we going that in depth with our team sport athletes? Uh, <coughs> sorry, you go, John. <clears throat> oh no, mate, no, mate. I was just, gonna, I was just going to say, Percy, mate. It's um, you know, like before v VBT, before before I can implement guys using velocity to prescribe to prescribe their training or help modify their training, I trust that I'm a good enough coach to make sure their technique is good enough. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to chase these arbitrary numbers or you know get them to do anything that is um you know ridiculous unless the the athletes that i'm working with have the technique to be able to do it you know and if boys are uh if the boys in the squad are you know chasing these numbers hey you know you just have it you have an explanation um, you have a chat with them you say okay this is why we're doing it and this is why you know and this is what we what i'm going to ask from you and you you, you, you use that relationship and that coaching experience to really hammer that uh, that technique element. Now that then comes into things like bar path. You know, I trust that I'm a good enough coach to be able to teach a squat or a bench press or a snatch or a clean or whatever it exercises is. And, um, you know, you can't, it's really, you know, bar path is just another form of augmented feedback, isn't it? It's really valuable. But I'm also a coach at heart too. I'm never going to be trying to sacrifice, you know, barbell velocity uh you know technique for barbell speed and things like that so for me personally mate it's um it's about keeping the coaching and coach you know, you know what i mean or the coaching coaching so i think um i think there's a really important thing to acknowledge there and not all forms of ebt are necessary all the time you know so i think i think that's important things like uh flex things like gym aware uh, and gym aware i think are the only ones with like the horizontal displacement measures they're really good for monitoring bar path i've had really good results with monitoring uh with providing feedback to my olympic level athlete uh, sorry olympic lifting athletes 
and uh, because they they like knowing where the bar path has gone. Rugby union, rugby league, AFL boys, they don't care. They just want to lift some heavy weights, you know what I mean? But for those technicians, for the sprinters, for the you know endurance runners, for the Olympic athletes, they love seeing that bar path. And if that's something they value and they get something out of and it helps them improve their technique, or maybe even a slight way, great. I'm not going to sacrifice anything at, at the expense of being a good coach as well, you know? Lucky yeah, I think David now. No, I was just going to say, I, I personally wouldn't waste waste time on getting a, a an app or something real specific for bar path. If if it if it's great as as Jono said, it, it's a feedback tool. Now, I'll what if I'm teaching someone Olympic lift, I'll coach, I'll coach, I'll give cues, I'll give movements, I'll give you know, feel, and then I oh well, if they're still not getting it, then I'll film them, I show them, and then you can they can see the bar path move. Like if if it helps, it helps. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not something that I would put all of my team sport athletes through uh, a bar path screen uh, to see what sort of movements they have and, and give them all a, a percentage off the midline and this type of stuff and rank them. And it, it, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a great feedback tool for someone that needs it. Um, in Jono's example, well, if he's working with Olympic weightlifters, that that's their game footage. It's the same as, you know, when, when a, a footy player watches their, their training sessions or their field sessions, um, that they pay attention to that. If you're an Olympic weightlifter, well, you're going to pay attention to the, the film of you doing Olympic weightlifting. Um, probably not as important for, for a team sport athlete, providing that coaching them and cueing them and, and showing them video footage just you know, with an iPhone on, on or a Samsung, whatever you got, um, <laughs> on the gym floor um, and, you know, showing them showing them the video. It's, yeah, that's that's the best thing about smartphones these days. I'll, I'll use it all the time just to film, quickly show, slow down. They see it. Ah, it clicks with them. I now know what he's saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just diving into one of the questions um, from from John around uh, peak power. Watts as a means of collecting extra data is that useful? Feel free to dive in. I, I won't put it on someone's plate. Is that is that something that we should be worried about? These kind of extra metri- metrics. The problem with watts and power now there are so many different calculations. Um, that you, we can't just compare between devices. Uh, it, uh, you know, there's, every researcher has a fight, you know, these biomechanics about how power should be calculated. So whilst all my public papers, like from 20 years ago, we had power, we use a simple formula of uh, mass times by 9.81 times by the velocity. Now you can't use that, or, or some, some people don't use that, they use their other things, and I don't know. So the safest now just to measure uh, velocity and then if you want to work out your own power you can use that old school formula um, because uh, for example I'll give you an example we used to always have power for and when I was at the Broncos you know because we had different ways to jump sports we're trying to work out you know. and then all of a sudden in uh, I think 2010 uh, and the scores did not correlate with the previous 10 years data, uh, sorry, 14 years of data I'd collected, even the last week. So I stay away from power now because every device uses different algorithms. I just stay with um, either average velocity across the entire range or peak velocity. Power is unfortunately flawed now. I think there too, Rob. Like personally, there's only one instance when I'd provide power back to athletes it's just to motivate them athletes like the concept of power they go oh power great you know this is phenomenal but realistically we know because you know 
force times velocity equals power. And you know, if you've got a heavier bar, if you're lifting it, so, so the person who's lifting the heavier bar at the same relative speed, so let's say two people lifting at 0.4 meters per second, and one person's got a heavier bar, well, guess what? That person is more powerful. So realistically, the reason, the only reason we use velocity is because there's a perfectly, well, near perfect relationship between barbell velocity and intensity, which we can help use to prescribe. We know that as individuals fatigue, bars go slower. So as fatigue accumulates, we get tired. And that there's a relationship with the uh, terminal velocity, which is often known as the 1RM velocity. So by prescribing, by, prescri uh, by monitoring power, realistically, you're kind of just looking at the mass on the bar. You know what I mean? Like, so, for, so you know, from a, like a real basic kind of, no, like I'm not a biomechanist, but, you know, force times velocity. If the bar velocity between your squads are pretty similar, let's say all, you're all training at 0.5, well, the strongest guy is going to have the highest power. So personally, um, and I've had this discussion before, but you know, you know, you just stick with velocity. You know, you know what I mean. It's so easy, and and the power can be used as a tool that helps motivate them. Oh, I'm really powerful today, but realistically, at the end of the day, the tools that we need, it's right there in front of us in VBT. Yeah, I'm answer. I only use velocity. <laughs> yeah, cool. John, I'll come back to you. Is there a redu reduction in validity? with decreases in skill of movement i know we've, we've potentially touched on this already but explicitly yeah like so like if, like, like personally you know if, if i i trust that i'm a good enough coach to be able to coach a squat a bench press a clean a pull all those sorts of exercises and if if the if they're not skillful enough to perform the movements dbt probably isn't the tool for them probably they need to go do more body weight squats but you know, goblet squats and Bulgarian split squats and just get used to like the proprioception of their body. They just need to know where their limbs are in space, probably. So uh, personally, if, um, if you're starting to kind of wobble around with the bar and things are going like this and all that sort of stuff, well, yeah, the velocity is going to be, you know, skewed for sure. But realistically, do they need the velocity? You know what I mean? Because like I trust that my athletes, the low velocity, uh, yeah, low velocity relationship is linear, but if they're wobbling around and kind of doing the wonky knee dance, you know, I'd probably start to go, oh, geez, maybe they don't need BBT right now. Maybe they'd need a coach. <laughs> Dan, just coming back to what you said at the start about the name, VBT, velocity-based training, what would be the alternative to, um, to help everyone? Have you got a good one? Trade market. Power-based training. Yeah, just power training. Well, no, we use it for strength training as well. So I just, do we call percentage-based stuff, oh, I'm doing percent-based training? Do we call it RPE-based training, strength training? It's a tool we use to make a selection and choices. So I just say, yeah, I've used velocity here to, you know, like in today's uh, jump squat thing, we've got six sets of three. Um, we're gonna use the highest amount of weight. We're gonna start with X weight. And if you get over this velocity score, you can add more weight until you get to this threshold. We can't go below this score, but keep putting on more weight if you get above this score. Um, so it, it's a tool for certain exercises, but in other exercises, if I'm squatting heavy, I'm squatting heavy. And the velocity scores will be, you know, the, that they'll roll out what they roll out at. So if I'm going to like RPE 9.5 on my squats tomorrow, I know what my last rep's going to be. I can tell you right now, somewhere in between 0.25 and 0.29. I can tell you that right now. So don't matter. 
matter shit to me at any velocity loss because it depends what the first rep is. The first rep will be around 0.4. It'll be 175K. So, you know, I'm not saying we're doing velocity-based training. I'm using velocity when I do my squats tomorrow. And I'll also do it when I'm doing some light stuff, but it's just a tool. So yeah, I think it's, I think it might even be semantics, but you're spot on that when people think of it as a training methodology rather than a tool to assist with their training. And I, I personally, like, I don't, I don't believe it's a training methodology. It's not a, you know, it's not a style of training or a, a construct of programming or tra- it, it is, it is a tool that measures whatever training you're doing or however you're programming it or however you're setting it up. The same as the weight on the bar is a measurement of what you're lifting. Like it's, yeah, I think, um, I think people will probably get caught up as you're either doing VBT or you're not. It's, it's an addition to, to whatever programming you're currently doing, in my opinion. Not to sound like a broken record. Oh, sorry, no, you're going down. It'll be more interesting than what we're going to say. Yeah, so well, Olympic weightlifting velocity-based strength. You don't get a certain velocity. The bar doesn't land on your shoulders. So all Olympic weightlifting is velocity-based training. If you, exactly. you, know, you, don't, you don't clean at a peak of, of at least 1.5, the bar will not end on your collarbone. So, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think probably not to sound like a broken record. It's, it's a tool. It, you know, you know, percentage-based training and velocity-based training go hand in hand. And when people go, "Oh, VBT is a myth," and VBT doesn't work, and you know, like you know, I once had a like a reviewer once come to me back to me saying, "Oh, Jonathan Weekly's work is totally unjustified and doesn't re- it, it doesn't make sense." I was like, "Mate, like as long as barbells go slower and barbells get heavier and things like that, well, I can know. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of don't know how to respond to that. So, um. It's a tool. It's a tool. I'd probably change it to VBT or velocity-based tools. Um, so the thing is, is that um, I, I, th- I think realistically, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, VBT is a tool that uses all the information. That's your skin, Matt Beard, mate. They'll be high five and spinning in their grades right now because we're not against it. It's not. It's not like Lockie, Dan, me, Jay Z, Joe Biden are sitting around in the VBT Illuminati. Like, you know what I mean? It's just using this tool that we've got to help inform and help to account for the fatigue as we're going. So realistically, all those block periodized models, linear periodization, or whatever you got, whatever people want to go call that. I'm not going to go into that debate right now. Undulating programming and all that sort of stuff. We can still use everything that we know. We can still use those percentages but we just know that there's a corresponding speed that helps us to account for the fatigue better and be more objective every single day. Lucky, coming back to you, and I know I think you've gone through this process relatively recently, and this is, I probably left this to last to, to just get it in and then bail, and then bail. Choosing, choosing, <laughs> choosing good, good VBT equipment, what was the process that you went through to, to, to choose the, the tool that you decided on in the end? A uh, very simple process is trusting very smart people um, and a lot smarter than me. Um, I, I'm certainly not a researcher. I'm not someone that can uh, you know, pull, pull the VB, VBT tools apart and, and look at the, the reliability and the validity of it. Um, I've used push bands. I've used Gymware, the original Gymware's, plus the, the, now the, um, the Flex systems. Um, 
My selection uh, was based around ease of use, what my athletes could also um, use easily and also things that gave me reliable reliable feedback. So um, we've landed at the moment, uh, this could change, but we've, we've used Gymwear, that changed. We used Push, that changed. We're now on, on Gymwear Flex. Um, and it's the wireless system's easy for us to, to put in a busy gym, um, not getting caught up on things, not getting attached to things. Um, it's easy feedback, very simple feedback on an iPad for our athletes, big numbers, big buttons, big, big, uh, big um, kilogram measurements that they can punch in very easily um, and they understand it. And it's a pretty boring answer, but that's exactly how I base it on. Um, from that, there's then the, obviously, there's, as I said, the tier of, of talking to others that have used products and, and have actually looked at more of the reliability and validity research. Um, and again, I, I trust my peers rather than um, you know, delving deep down into that. But also when I'm coaching, I want to make sure that when I'm getting numbers back, that it's making sense, that it's counting the reps correctly. It's giving me the, the, the um, philosophy that I would think would be roughly around. Yeah, obviously, it's always going to be eyeballing, but um, I've certainly, I've, uh, even early days with gym aware when, um, you know, you'd be doing an Olympic lift and exactly what Dan said, so they make a, a big hip contact and you get this spike and you're like, that. That is not correct. Like that did not make any sense. And when you obviously watch them, you can see where it's coming from. Um, but yeah, I think the two levels are what's easy and, and applicable in my environment, uh, but also trusting people smarter than me around validity and reliability of it. Jono, anything to add? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think um, like for me, like I just don't like being lied to. You know what I mean? I think that's I think that's a life thing, and I think that's a you know I, I think that's across everything that I do and. You know, the technology that I use, um, I'm very, very, uh, yeah, I, I trust that the information that is coming into me is reliable and is valid. And those, I know it's scientific principles, we're not going to go down the scientific rabbit hole, but the, these, the, these concepts are absolutely essential to technology in particular. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to plug, shamelessly plug myself here too much, but the thing is, we wrote a big, we wrote a big systematic review on it. It's in sports med. It will come out hopefully in the next couple of, it's already accepted, it's been accepted for a month or two. It's got everything summed up, every single device on the market in the last, you know, what, forever? It's forever now. So every, every, every device you can think of has been summed up in this paper. And there, there's a pretty clear winner, you know, and that's probably just due to the validity and reliability. But for me, it, I trust these devices to provide me good, accurate feedback. And that feedback is um, essential to helping me make objective decisions with my athletes. So um, yeah, personally, you know, like if people want to reach out and have a chat about it, for sure, you know, but I think um, having good, valid, reliable tools is absolutely essential. Um, last but not least. Uh, I've used, well, since I've been around the nineties, we used plyometric power system, then we use uh, timing mats, then we use tender dine, uh, then gym aware, uh, uh, early version of assess to perform, and then push. So I currently use push because it's cost effective for most trainers. Now, when people say, oh, it's not valid, with the latest paper by uh, Liam Hughes compared push and gym wear, they're found to be very similar, but for the same. What people don't realize is the difference sometimes is in rep detection, when that rep starts and ends. Now, if you've got a leak Olympic bar and someone's doing a heavy squat, and I published this in uh, Instagram, one of my guys at workshop, squatting 187, the bar comes up, whips past the original position, 
It's a forceful knockout, whips up, and then comes back down. Where's the end of that rep? Is it when it goes past the original start position, when it comes back down, when it settles after a few oscillations? When is the exact end of that rep? And none of the researchers, no paper has ever said, uh, has accounted for that when they look at these validities. I know when ECU does a paper, they always all use, because I'm from ECU, Alico weightlifting bars. So I know that. So I know that when they've got a heavy squat and the guys are squatting 150, 160, they've got these whipping motions and, the, and these Alico bars. So when someone's doing validity on these devices, they should say which barbell they're using. They should, but I've never seen that in another paper except from ECU ones where they say we're using Alico ones. Because when they're trying to compare bars, you know, all, all these devices should be compared on different barbells. So you could say, I'm going to use a gym aware on a, a Lico powerlifting bar, which is very stiff, versus an Lico weightlifting bar and do a squat and see if we get the same measurement. And then, you know, again, as we all know, the bar placement on, on the bar of the device affects them as well. So I would say to people, just be aware that, you know, you can, like Gymware has got the longest time of collecting data since say 2006, they've been around the longest, but other devices are coming on the market that are a different price point. I mean, let's face it, well, how much is Gymware? Two and a half thousand? Yeah, the linear transition is 2,600 and then the flex is 600. 600 US or Oz? Uh, Australian or 660 something, yeah. Yeah, so they've had to come down to a market because you get these other devices, the accelerometers are, you know, 300, 400, um, something like that. So they've had to go from the Rolls-Royce market and come down with flex. So a lot of these devices are fairly good. So if you're doing research, like John is saying, you probably want to go um, look with a gym web because it gives you a rabbit hole of so much other things you can look at. And I've got research with, a lot of my research is with gym aware. If you're just a trainer, and when I say just a trainer, be a strength conditioning coach and that, and price point is uh, an issue, you'll go with one of the cheaper accelerometers, which is, which is shown to be valid though. Um, and there's few that are and few that aren't. And, but, uh, you know, the thing with all these devices is the algorithms of all the good companies are always being improved through rep detection and machine learning. So all the good companies are always improving. So you might read a review paper, from 2016 on some device, well, that's four-year-old data, four-year-old algorithms don't count anymore. So we just gotta be aware that, you know, devices, the people who make them, uh, like Jono says, they're smarter. They're always improving their devices. So, you know, we can be aware of that as well. Make, make an a, a informed decision about how much money you have and what you're looking at too, for a, a strength coach. Were you gonna add to that, Jono? Or this is that all right? Yeah, I, th I think that I think that sums everything up, you know. And I, you know, I think I think you, you know, to echo what Locke and uh, Dan said, you know, we've got to make an informed decision about what we're using it for. You know, what I mean, if if accuracy is, <clears throat> if accuracy is the most essential thing, then <clears throat> we have linear position transducers which have a direct measure of displacement. Jimware, great. You know, you know things like uh, optic lasers which are in the flex. You know measure of displacement, but around 500, 550, maybe 600, somewhere in that mark around there.
Great. You know, but the thing is as well, like, you know, you've got these accelerometers. If they're, if they're, if you want to provide feedback to athletes and that's something, and you, you know, you can buy five of them for $2,000 or whatever it may be, then away we go. You know what I mean? I think, I think we need to identify what it is from the VBT kind of spectrum of uses and then go, let's make an informed decision about what we've got. Let's work with our own, um, let's work with what our, our own constraints and then make the best decision. There's still quite a few questions that we haven't been able to answer just because we've run out of time. Are people all right to, to reach out to you guys individually, whether it be Twitter or Instagram for you, Dan, to, to ask any further questions that people have got? Is that all right? Of course, yeah. 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 Twitter, the best, yeah. Twitter the best place for you, Jono and, and Lockie? Uh, yeah, I, I do see Twitter. Oh, Instagram. Not, I, Instagram is probably the easiest, yeah. I'll yeah. try to keep one place, otherwise you get carried away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So Instagram for you, Lockie. Instagram for you, Dan. Twitter for you, Jono. Yeah, my Instagram is uh, not popping as much as you boys. So I think it's uh, <laughs> no. I think Twitter. I think Twitter is probably a bit easier for me, and and that's how I probably communicate. Instagrams, you know, like I got my my niece, and it's just pictures of me and my niece. I think Jono's last post was him with his shirt off. I was going to say that the topless oh, waiter. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be, yeah, oh, yeah, with the bunny too. <laughs> Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, I keep those ones pretty, uh, pretty locked down. That's my non. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, th I think as well like emails and things like that. And I'm always up for a chat personally as well. And you know, for me, like I try and I, I, I try and stay on the coach's floor as much as possible for four days a week. And then I try and stay current with the research. So I'm also pretty sharp with the old ACU email. So if, or or a phone call, of course. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, giving up an hour of your Sunday evening to have a chat. And uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. But yeah, anyone wants to get in touch with you guys, they're the places to go. Appreciate yeah. your time, guys. Thank you very much. Right, Cheers, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to episode 421 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. As I mentioned, this episode was recorded in 2020. But because the information was so incredible, I had to get it out again because it was only available via video on the Sportsmith website. I wanted to get out on the podcast, increase its reach because the information was so great. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Smarterbase, which was formerly Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, Stanta College and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks for you to tune in and I look forward to chatting to you next time.